Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, August 30th, and here's what's on the docket this week. In a surprise move, the FDA rejected Axia Therapeutics' drug for a rare condition that leads to a buildup of fat in organs. We'll talk about what this decision says about the limits to the FDA's perceived move toward greater leniency. Senator John McCain's death at age 81 is prompting reflection on the state of drug development for the brain cancer that killed him. We'll discuss why there are so few combination trials testing drugs for glioblastoma. Earlier this week, a large clinical trial studying the effect of fish oil on long-term heart health came back negative. There was no benefit. We'll discuss the growing body of scientific evidence against fish oil and why that might prove troublesome to one specific biotech company. And finally, we'll bring you another lightning round. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to STAT Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. Here's the conventional wisdom over the last few years. The FDA is more lenient than ever before, approving new drugs on less and less evidence. And if that drug happens to treat a rare disease, it's basically an automatic green light. This week was a reminder that the conventional wisdom isn't always right. So there's a company called Axia Therapeutics, and it invented a drug to treat a rare genetic disease called FCS, which leads to a dangerous buildup of fat in bodily organs. There are no approved treatments for FCS, and Axia's drug met its goals in clinical trials, so it seemed like a safe bet to win over the FDA. And yet it got rejected. What happened? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, We don't really know exactly why the FDA rejected the drug. Uh, Axia hasn't told us, and the FDA is is under no obligation to say anything. But there were some safety concerns that were brought up about the drug, particularly around blood clots and bleeding. So we've heard so much about the FDA's efforts to speed up drug development and to approve more therapies for diseases that don't have drugs. What does this rejection mean in that broader context? Well, you know, Damien, um, these are not mutually exclusive things. I mean, the FDA can both be more flexible and they can still reject a drug. A lot of the new guidelines that the FDA is putting in place will take time to show, you know, even if you allow for different endpoints, companies are still going to have to run clinical trials. I think a lot of the discussion about a more lenient FDA stems from the legacy of Sarepta Therapeutics. So two years ago, the FDA approved Sarepta's treatment for Duchenne muscular dystrophy on what was perceived as pretty scant evidence because basically the drug was safe and there was nothing out there for patients suffering from this disease. And I think A lot of people read that as a sea change at the FDA, and years from now, we may end up seeing it that way, but I think it's always important to come back to the fact that Sarepta's drug was safe. So back to Axia. The company has a whole pipeline of treatments that use a similar technology to the one that just got rejected. Is their business at risk now? So Rebecca, you raise a good point. You know, this rejection raises the risk that Axia's other drug, which is also under FDA review right now could be rejected. You know, the FDA might have a problem with the the company's technology platform. Uh, it's called AntiSense, and that's a method of turning off disease-causing genes. Um, now, we don't know this, of course, but there is a real risk of that. So far this year in 2018, 
FDA has approved 33 new drugs. That's a definition of new molecular entities. Um, And I think it will take a few years before we really get a sense of this perceived shift by the FDA. As Adam had pointed out, I think the one rejection um, is not going to be a, a telltale sign of the direction that the FDA is headed. Senator John McCain died at the age of 81 last Saturday from glioblastoma, the most common form of adult brain cancer. McCain's death has prompted plenty of reflection on his legacy, as well as on the state of research into a disease that's proved really hard to move the needle on. Let's walk through some of the disheartening statistics. Glioblastomas kill 85% of patients within five years. Almost half die within 18 months. And of two dozen experimental drugs tested in clinical trials for newly diagnosed glioblastoma in the last decade, none of them improved survival. And one of the reasons the disease is so tough to treat is that a glioblastoma contains cells with many different mutations. And that's why the cancer almost always recurs, and why, even if a therapy can block a tumor-fueling pathway, the cancer detours to an alternative route. Because of this biology, there's wide agreement among researchers that the disease can't effectively be treated without combination therapy. That's an approach that brings together multiple therapeutic agents. It's like taking multiple shots on goal. And overall, it's a thriving area of drug development. A Nature editorial last year counted 10,000 clinical trials testing drug combinations in the U.S. across disease states within the realm of immunotherapy, looking specifically at the checkpoint inhibitors known as PD-1s and PDL-1s. There were about 2,000 such clinical trials testing drug combos. That's according to the Cancer Research Institute, a group that supports immunotherapy research. But those studies are spread unequally across disease areas. Lung cancer, for instance, is a big beneficiary. It represents about one-fifth of all these combination studies. But by contrast, very few of those trials are testing drug combinations for glioblastoma. So according to the Cancer Research Institute, there are only about 46 trials in glioblastoma or brain cancer in general, and they've enrolled just a little over 4,000 patients. And that number could actually be even smaller because you have to keep in mind that the number reflects all of those trials that may contain multiple patient groups where glioblastoma is just one of many. And thus, there could be even fewer glioblastoma patients trying those combinations than that even implies. So Vanessa Lucy is director of the Cancer Research Institute's Venture Fund and Clinical Accelerator. And she joins us to talk about the state of combination research. Vanessa, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So Vanessa, why do you think there are relatively few combination trials for glioblastoma? I think, you know, it really um, lies in the fact that there are, it's a pretty small market. And if you look at all the trials that are um, ongoing, the 46 trials, the majority of those trials are not industry sponsored. They're actually done by academic labs, what are called investigator-initiated studies, or um, other institutes like the Cancer Research Institute or other nonprofits that are looking at these um, harder-to-treat diseases. Um, You know, with glioblastoma, it hasn't had much success with immunotherapy, although some of the data that's reported has shown that there has been some patients that respond have a very long duration of response. So that means that actually there could be a a proportion of patients that are actually deriving benefit. And we really believe that doing more translational research and correlative work in these studies could actually find which of those patients, why they respond, what are the the characteristics of those super responders um, versus non-responders. 
And you mentioned that most of it comes from investigator-sponsored research. Why do you think that the industry, why drug makers, don't see an incentive to invest in these combo trials for glioblastoma? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there hasn't been, you know, fantastic results in the monotherapy setting, that there's, you know, a lot of money being invested into lung cancer, which does affect a a large proportion of uh, the cancer statistics. Um, But these kinds of cold tumors, glioblastoma, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, the microsatellite-stable colorectal cancer haven't been shown to be particularly immunoresponsive, and thus it's sort of been a, a, you know, a tougher nut to crack. And I think that's where we really need more scientific, biological rationale in these combinations and more research being done and more money being put into these. You know, there are only a few of these industry-sponsored studies um, being conducted. I think that mostly these kinds of cold tumors are just hard to understand from a biological standpoint, and there just needs to be more research done in that area. So, Vanessa, we've seen some really dramatically positive results from immunotherapy drugs in certain types of cancer. You know, you mentioned lung cancer, for example, but not so with GBM. Uh, Why is that? You know, it could, it's a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's a very significant stroma in, in GBM. There's a lot of different kinds of immunosuppressive cells that are Um, potentially mitigating any effect of checkpoint inhibitors, and you have to deal with drugs that have to cross the blood-brain barrier. Vanessa, if researchers had an endless pot of money and resources, what kind of studies would they run in glioblastoma? I think that the field in general has been moving towards these adaptive trial designs when it comes to clinical trials. I think there is a trial design in Arizona called GBM Agile, and These studies are designed to both be operationally um, efficient as well as to um, have different scientific ideas and different kind of combination ideas tested uh, rather quickly so that an arm can actually open or close um, based on the data and move into, you know, either expand or close down if there is no result seen. So I think that a lot of researchers would really have a lot of great ideas that they need funding for, but are not getting traction amongst industry, um, and that there are groups um, such as the NIH, such as nonprofits as ourselves, that could really serve as a place to provide that funding so that these different kind of ideas can actually be tested in the clinic. Great. Vanessa, thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much. like millions of Americans, one of the things you do in the morning, besides gulp down a cup of coffee, is swallow a capsule containing fish oil. Fish oil is one of America's most widely used nutritional supplements, and that's because of the belief that the omega-3 fatty acids inside help improve cardiovascular health. But there's a problem. When researchers run large clinical trials of fish oil, they find no evidence that these capsules actually lower the risk of heart attack or stroke. Yeah, that's right. Earlier this week, researchers at a European cardiology conference raised more doubts about the heart protective benefit of omega-3. The daily use of a prescription-grade fish oil capsule, this is one that was first marketed by GlaxoSmithKline before going generic, failed to prevent serious cardiovascular events or death. The findings came from a large, randomized clinical trial that enrolled more than 15,000 people with diabetes. And 
All of this growing skepticism about fish oil is coming at a rather inconvenient time for one drug company that's trying to buck that trend. Yeah, that company is Amarin. You know, back in 2012, Amarin won approval for a prescription-grade fish oil pill called Vasipa, and that's used to treat patients with very high levels of a certain type of fat in their blood. Now, but sales of Vasipa have been modest, mainly because Amarin lacks scientific proof that lowering this fat in blood prevents heart attacks, strokes, or cardiovascular deaths. So Amarin is running its own large cardiovascular outcome study of Vasipa. And it's taken years to recruit and treat thousands of patients, but finally, results from this study are expected in September, so they're just weeks away. So Adam, are there any reasons to be hopeful that Vasipa might lower the risk of heart attacks and strokes? That is, finally show a benefit where all other omega-3 fish oils have not? You know, Rebecca, if you polled academic cardiologists on this question, I think you'd find a consensus of skepticism. You know, I spoke to Dr. Ethan Weiss. Uh, he's a cardiologist at the University of California in San Francisco. Uh, you know, he doesn't believe Amarin stands much of a chance, you know, mainly because of the negative clinical evidence compiled to date. But if you ask Amarin, they say that Vasipa and the clinical trial that they're running are different enough to produce a better outcome, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, Vasipa is given at a higher dose, four times higher dose, actually, which could help. Uh, the study that Amarin is running also specifically includes patients at risk for cardiovascular disease. This includes people with a prior history of heart attack. So selecting these higher-risk patients might increase the likelihood of detecting a more pronounced heart benefit with Vasipa, or so Amarin believes. Well, Amarin and the rest of us will have an answer in just a few weeks. And now, finally, it's time for the lightning round. First up, let's talk about CAR-T therapy, specifically Gilead Sciences' Yescarta. Uh, this week, the UK's cost-effectiveness watchdog declined to recommend government coverage. And it was interesting to see the way that that story got reacted to on Twitter, I guess. I feel like there was sort of a consensus among people who, I feel like, know this space fairly well, that this is a tragedy. This is such an effective drug that could provide hope for so many patients. It's terrible that the United Kingdom and its socialized medicine system are rejecting it. I feel like they're losing sight of the fact that the UK's drug pricing organization pretty much rejects everything on the first pass. And that's just like the beginning of a negotiation that almost always ends with patients getting the drug. Well, you covered it all, Damien. That was it. <laughs> I think the news here will be when the UK watchdog group actually decides to pay for a new drug on the first pass. So moving on, it is apparently a wonderful time to be a sell-side analyst in biotech. There was a Wall Street Journal story earlier this week detailing how basically the boom in biotech financings and IPOs has made for a seller's market for the people who provide research for investment banks who are consistently paid way more than their competitors who uh, cover other industries. And by way more, we're talking about multi-million dollar a year contracts that these analysts are getting to, to write about and slap buy ratings on biotech stocks. Speaking of slapping buy ratings on these companies, the journal reported that buy ratings represent more than three quarters of all recommendations that biotech analysts make. That compares with just about 56% for analysts covering other industries. Yeah, we always knew that sell-side analysts were an optimistic, happy bunch, and, and now we know why. You might remember last year when the FDA 
approved the first digital pill. Well, this week there was an update, right, Rebecca? Yeah, that's right. So as a refresher, um, this is a pill that's embedded with a sensor that can alert your physician or caregiver after you've swallowed it. Uh, It's basically a high-tech version of Abilify, uh, the antipsychotic drug. Uh, approved for patients with uh, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And the drugs maker, Otsuka, is taking an interesting approach to the initial rollout. Right. So they're targeting people with mental illness who are covered by Medicaid, likely in regions including Florida and Virginia, rather than, you know, going nationwide right away. I think it shows, you know, just how complex and intricate um, this launch will be. This is really uncharted territory. And a thing that's unusual is, is you know, seeing a low-income, highly-at-risk uh, population to get an innovation for the first time. There's been some concerns about uh, privacy and and consent. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So Rebecca Damien, uh, you're gonna be in Boston next week, right? Yeah, that's right. We'll be in town for something new for this podcast. Right, which is the first ever live recording of the podcast, which we hope you enjoy because you've listened this far into it. And if so, if you happen to be in Boston as well, you can join us on Thursday, September 6th at 1.15 p.m. Eastern for said live recording. Attendance is free for Stat Plus subscribers. You might even have the chance to ask us a question. I think we're going to do a live lightning round. Is that right? That is the plan, I think, currently, yes. How does one register for this event? Well, you can go to statnews.com slash ROL dash live. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Dom Smith and Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like. Try to warn us from not doing a live show. Whatever you want to share with us, you can do so by emailing readoutloud at statnews.com. And we appreciate the feedback, so thank you. 